All right, so we're going to land in the, the Old Testament today, the story in the Old Testament. Um, so first, a little bit of trivia here. See if you recognize the names of these chiefs. There's uh, a list of chiefs here. Shemua, Shaphat, Igal, Paltai, Gadiel. Anybody recognize them so far? Gadai. These are important men. Amiel, Sethor, Nabai, Guel. Any takers? Ten so far. All chiefs. Part of an important story. Any guesses? Hoshea, the son of Nun. Caleb. The spies, the ten spies, all chiefs of the tribes of Israel. Hoshea, the son of Nun, was called Joshua by Moses, which means the Lord saves. The ten names that I read first, we we hardly recognize because they have um, kind of dropped off into oblivion. But we know very well what their story was and what the outcome was of their story. The two names on the end, Joshua and Caleb, we're very familiar with because they stand out in contrast to those other 10 men. Uh, so we're going to read the story out of Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Uh, it's it's uh, kind of a long story, but I'm going to read the whole thing because it's uh, the Bible says that these things were written so that we, through the comfort of the scriptures, might have. And I think that this story can bring hope to us and it can help guide our lives. So I'm going to start in chap- uh, chapter 13, verse 17. Where Moses sent out these men, he sent them to spy the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many and whether the land they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lebohamath, and they went into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, and they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, 
we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. 
Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me, say, say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who said, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness." According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land, died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, they mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down by your enemies. For there the the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up into the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So just a little bit of background here to this story in the book of Numbers. We know the story of how God called Abraham out of uh, Haran. His father had come from Ur, way south of Babylon, um, and, and had traveled with Abraham way up north to Ur, and then God called uh, Abraham to go south around the Arabian Desert, down along the Mediterranean Sea, all the way down to the land of Canaan. When he arrived at the land of Canaan, God appeared to Abraham there, and he said that he was going to give him all the land that he could see. Um, I, I was kind of surprised when I looked at a map of the journey of Abraham, actually. He, he probably traveled between two and 3,000 miles over that time. Really incredible. And really incredible that he went into this land not knowing where he was going. He was just following God. In fact, he, he lived in tents, whereas Lot went down to the plains and ended up in the city of Sodom. It says that Moses went uh, to, to um, the hill country of Canaan, and he, even years later, he was still living in tents. He was still mobile, still waiting for, for God's leading in his life. But while he was there, God had promised, God had sworn by himself and said, I'm going to give you all this land, everything that you can see. But first, your people are going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. 
And after that, I'm going to give you the good land. So we know the story. God brought the children of Israel out of the, uh, the land of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He destroyed their enemies, uh, sent a pillar of cloud to lead them in the daytime, a pillar of fire at night. He gave them manna from heaven to feed them, water from a rock. Um, they heard the voice of God from heaven speaking directly to them. But most importantly, God gave them his presence. They had the presence of God in the middle of the camp or at, at the tabernacle. And they spent about a year there at, the, uh, at Mount Sinai. And then the pillar of cloud started moving and led them north to the southern border of the land of Canaan to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And so the book of Numbers begins with uh, a military census where they counted all the men age 20 and up who were able to go to war. And by this time, there were like 600,000 of them. So that's a sizable army. And if you do the math, you can figure there was probably between two and, million, two and three million people altogether. So this is a large crowd by this point. Um, so they come to the southern border of the land of Canaan, and Moses selects spies one, a chief out of each uh, tribe, and he tells them to go up into the land, go up into the Negev, the south land, go on up into the hill country. Uh, it would have been like 220 miles in all. They went, went way up to the northern end of, of the land of Canaan. They spent 40 days traversing the land. He said, see what the land is, see if the people are strong or weak. Really, they hadn't been there. They didn't know what was in the land of Canaan at this point, whether they live in camps or strongholds, whether there's uh, trees or not, if the land is good land or bad land, um, and bring back some of its fruit because it was the time of, of the first ripe grapes. So they went up there. They spent uh, 40 days um, looking over the land, seeing what was there. They came to the valley of Eshkol, um, where still that's a great place for vineyards. And they found a cluster of grapes that was so large, they had to suspend it on a pole and carry it between two men. And they also got some pomegranates and figs. And they came back down um, at the end of 40 days, and they called the people together, and they gave them the report. And guess what? The land was good. Just like God had said it was going to be. Almost 700 years before that. God had said he was going to bring them into the land of, that was flowing with milk and honey. And guess what? It was a land flowing with milk and honey. This wasn't like the Chihuahuan Desert. You know, uh, the Russian Mennonites went down into the Chihuahuan Desert, desert in Mexico. And it's a desolate place. You, you go down there, it's like, how could anybody survive here? And over the course of years, they dug wells, they planted cotton fields, and they turned that into a, a real um, agricultural um, greenhouse in mexico it's really incredible but this was not a desert like this this was like the napa valley you ever driven through the napa valley and seen the rolling hills and the vineyards that are cultivated beautiful beautiful productive place this was the land of canaan it was a land that was flowing with milk and honey valleys with streams and cattle and vineyards it was a land of abundance and they brought back this report. Yeah, it's like God had said way back then that it was going to be. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. However, people, people of the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And the descendants of Anak, who must have been famous giants because they're mentioned several times, live there. And the Amalekites dwell in the Negev, the south land. And up in the hill country, there's the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites. There's all these 
strongholds and uh, well-organized groups of people. And they're stronger than us. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. And when Caleb heard the perspective they were giving, giving and the response of the people, it says he quieted the people. And he told them, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. He had a different perspective than they did. He saw, just like, that, like they did, that the land was good. But he also saw that the power of God was with them and they were well able to overcome it. But the other ten said, we are not able to go up against these people. And then maybe they started embellishing it a little. I don't know. They said, this land is a land that devours its inhabitants. It's like walking into a graveyard. If we go up in there, we're going to be swallowed up by it. All the people are of great height. We saw the, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. We seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. We're no match for the enemy, and he knows it. That was their report. That night, after receiving that report, these, what, two or three million people, They raised a loud cry and they wept. And they said, God, why did you bring us out here just to kill us? Look at the awful impact of a few negative voices. Let's remind ourselves, we are surrounded by negative voices today. Media, the majority of it, is negative. The majority of what we hear has a negative tone. And we think, ah, that might not impact us. It does impact us. It's more important than ever that we keep our perspective on God because we are affected by the negative voices that come just like they were. And they ended up saying, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Would it have been better for us just to die as slaves? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? In other words, inheriting the promise that God promised us is too costly. So one of our automatic responses to this is to say, I would have done differently, right? You would have been like Caleb or Joshua, not like the other two million people. But we easily overlook the reality that they were confronting. This was not just a pessimistic attitude. They were looking at the reality of what they were confronting going into the land of Canaan. This was a rational perspective. They were a group of poorly armed, nomadic, sheep herders, displaced had just come out of Egypt, had spent a year or so traveling through the wilderness. And they were going into completely foreign territory. They had their wives and children who were at risk of, like they said, becoming a prey to the enemy, being taken captive. The enemy had the home field advantage. Uh, Archaeological excavations show that some of the cities that were built during that time were actually very heavily fortified. Um, The city of Hazor, for example, was like 190 acres that was walled in with uh, brick and mud walls that were up to 24 feet thick. And there's an estimated like 40,000 people that lived just in that one city. And so you imagine the the disadvantage that they had going into uh, this unknown territory where they didn't know the land, they didn't know the people, they didn't know what cities they were going to encounter, uh, heavily fortified cities. And they were going to go and try to take over these cities. Not to mention 
all the giants, these massive people that lived in there. It was a truly terrifying perspective. And it was going to end up being like a seven-year enterprise just to push back the people of Canaan and possess the land. This was all a rational human perspective. Hashtag follow the science, right? They were looking at it rationally and they were saying, yeah, there's, there's no way we can take, take this land. Those people are stronger than we are. There's more of them. We're poorly equipped. They have the home field advantage. They're in their fortified cities. There is no way, logically speaking, that we can go in there and take that land. In fact, what's going to happen is we're going to be killed. It's going to be a great loss of lives. And they're going to take our, our women and children captive. They're going to become slaves to them. However, what did they leave out of this equation, this rational equation? God, right? They didn't, they didn't even think about God. God, who cannot lie, had promised to give them the land of Canaan. It was their rightful inheritance. God said, this is your land. I'm going to give it to you. And when God gives us an inheritance, when he promises us something, there's nothing that can stop that from happening except our unbelief. Now, this, this applies to our uh, eternal inheritance, eternal life. It also applies to the specific things that God calls us to. When he calls us to take land from the enemy, and he says, I want you to take this land, that's, that's a promise. He doesn't ask us to take something without promising to give it to us, to fight for us. But it does come at a cost. It does mean that we're going to have to fight for it. We don't just sit back and just receive the promise without working for it. We have to fight like they were called to fight. But this response of unbelief created fear. Because they didn't take God into account, it created fear. And fear cannot inherit the promise. That's something that we can write down. Fear cannot inherit the promise. If you respond out of fear, if you live out of fear, you will not inherit the promise. So the prophetic perspective, we look at the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is recounting what happened here, and he tells them, Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, this is Moses, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Look at the prophetic perspective. He's looking back and he's saying, look guys, just the same way God's been carrying you and fighting for you, he's going to do that in the future. Just look at what he's done. There is evidence that God is working for you. You just watch God defeat what was arguably the most powerful empire in the, on the face of the earth at that time, right before your eyes. You watched as he sent miraculous plagues. Nothing like this had ever happened before on the earth. 
as he sent miraculous plagues onto the land until the tyrant that had enslaved you ordered you to leave along with your, your stuff and your God. You watched when you came to the Red Sea and the enemy was closing in behind you and the, the mountains were off to the one side and you were trapped. You watched when God made water stand up like walls and you walked between those walls on dry land. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And you watched as he closed that sea behind you right on top of your enemies, crushing an entire army into oblivion in a matter of minutes. You danced and sang on the seashore at the great salvation that God had worked on your behalf. You celebrated it. You saw it. You watched a river come out of a rock in a desert. Enough water to, to, for, for millions of people and all their cattle. You literally ate food that was sent down from heaven. This entire time, God's been feeding you and taking care of you. You remember the Amalekites that they were so terrified of? That they said they saw up there in the hill country? You know what they had done? They had fought the Amalekites. The Amalekites had come down and fought them. You remember the story where Moses uh, lifted up his staff? And as long as he had his staff up, they had the victory. And when his arms got tired, they started being defeated. And so they took two men up there, Aaron and Hur, to hold up his arms. And they defeated the Amalekites. And you know what God said? He said, write it down in a book for a memorial. This is what I'm going to do. They already had proof that God would defeat their enemies, even at their hands. After all these signs, they said, because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of Egypt. Guys, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. See, God didn't bring them to the edge of the promised land without first showing them his loving provision. He showed them first. He did not bring them to the edge and say, okay, guys, you go fight in blind faith. He had demonstrated to them his provision, his grace, his care. He had given them his presence. They had more than ample evidence that he was for them. That he loved them. Moses said he carried you like a, like a dad carries his little boy. If they would have even looked back for just a minute, they could have easily seen. Look, guys, the way God's taken care of us over the last year, the way he brought us out of Egypt, the way he defeated the Amalekites, the way he's been providing for us, it's so obvious. He loves us. He's going to take care of us as we go off into Canaan. God's response, the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, because he has wholly followed the Lord and Joshua. God told Moses, stand back. I'm going to wipe these people out. I'm going to to wipe them out with a plague in an instant, because they despised me. But Moses interceded on their behalf. Notably, not appealing to their value as a group of people, but appealing to the glory of God. He said, God, if you destroy them now, the Egyptians and all the enemies around us, they're going to look on, they're going to say, you couldn't bring him into the land. And God forgave them because of Moses' intercession. It says, 
God forgave their sin. He pardoned them. However, there were still consequences for their unbelief. The consequences were they could not possess the inheritance that would rightfully have been theirs. An entire generation forfeited the inheritance that they had been promised. When they were so close to it, between six and seven hundred years that they had come through this process, gone through Egypt, come out, and up through the wilderness, and they, were, they stopped just ten miles short because they wouldn't look back and say, yeah, God, you've proven yourself to us. An entire generation grew up in the wilderness waiting for the inheritance that their parents had rejected. Were they still God's people? Yes. Did God still love them? Yes. But were they actively contributing to his kingdom purposes? No. Now, to be clear, God had a purpose in their time in the wilderness. But they all died off there. Everybody 20 years old and older, except for Joshua and Caleb, died off in the wilderness. They didn't take the land from the enemy like God had wanted them to because of their unbelief. They were still offering up the prescribed sacrifices, still holding weekly worship services. But they were waiting for an entire generation to die off while the enemy remained in possession of the land that was rightfully theirs. Their unbelief and the resulting fear, their response of fear, kept them from taking ground from the enemy. What the craziest part of the story is, that when God says, okay, you're scared of going up there, you won't go up there. You, you despise me, you're going to die in the wilderness. You ask to die in the wilderness, wish granted. And after he had told them on, in uncertain terms that they were not going to go up into the land, that they were going to die in the wilderness, you know what they did? These same people who were so scared of going up there that they spent an entire night crying said, oh, oh yeah, we're going to go up there after all. Isn't that just crazy? Still the same giants and the same people up there. And Moses even told them, don't do it. God's not with you. You're gonna, your enemies are going to defeat you. I used to think that they must have just gone up to like one of the fringe cities. Actually, they went way up to the country, probably just south of Jerusalem. And the, the Amalekites routed them and sent them running all the way back to their tents in the wilderness. Unbelief cannot inherit the promise. Only faith can inherit the promise. It's only when we have faith in the promise of God that we can go up and take the land. Unbelief cannot inherit it. Our efforts can easily become a substitute for that faith. So when God, when we don't operate in faith, then we start, we start doing things that at first seem rational, but always leads to an irrational outcome. Fear always leads us to an irrational response. Caleb, on the other hand, remember God told him, you will inherit the promise because you wholly followed the Lord. In the book of Joshua, we see that how the, after the children of Israel went up and they had fought for around seven years to, to take out most of the enemies in that region, Caleb went to Moses and he told him, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea. Did I say he went to Moses? He went to Joshua. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as, was, as it was in my heart. 
But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. There was a promise that was given to an individual. You know, it's kind of tragic. He spent 40 years in the wilderness along with the unbelievers. He, He felt keenly the the consequences of unbelief of other people. And yet he remained faithful to the Lord. He, he wholly followed the Lord through that time. Even as he watched all his peers die off, every one of them except for Joshua. And now behold, I'm this day 85 years old, And I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then. For war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there. Huh. There's those giants that everybody was so terrified of. He specifically said, you heard how those giants are there. Let me go up and take them. It may be the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord has said. He's still, 40 years later, he's still holding on to the promise of God just like he had before. Saying, if God's with me, there's nothing that can stop me from driving them out. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Now Hebron was where God had promised to Abraham that he was going to give him the land. It was also where some of the patriarchs were buried. It's where Sarah was buried. This is a very significant place. The very center of the inheritance is what was given to Caleb because of of his faith in the Lord. Because he said, if God's with me, nothing can stop me. So if we find ourselves with circumstances that are in front of us, that look too big, what do we do to change our perspective? Because we are just like the Israelites, and we have a very rational, realistic perspective of what lies ahead of us, right? We also follow the science. One of the things we need to do is worship. Because when we turn to God and worship, we're taking our eyes off of our circumstances, and we're looking at how big God is. And that changes the picture. Because in comparison, in comparison to who God is, our circumstances, our problems that we're confronting become very small. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is literally bringing our thoughts about the issue to God and saying, God, I'm looking at this situation and it looks scary. It looks impossible. But I know that's not your perspective. Is it? That's not God's perspective. It doesn't look scary to God. It doesn't look too big to Him. It doesn't look like, oh, we're barely going to make it through this. So we bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And we say, thought, you will bow to what God says about this. And we ask God, change my perspective. Bend this thought pattern to match yours. Change this perspective. Conform it to the way you see things. And we look back. We just look back at what God has done in the past. Right? We say, God, it's so obvious you've been working in me in the past. 
And I see the outcomes. I see that how you work all things together for good for those who love you. Because when we look back through the perspective of what God has been doing, we see it. Just like Israel could have looked back and seen how God had been caring for them. When you see the faithfulness of God in your past experiences, then you can know that He's going to be faithful to you for the future, for the promises in the future. In fact, that's why we can rejoice in trials. Like uh, Romans chapter 5 says, uh, this, this verse really grabbed my attention. It was two weeks ago when Luke was uh, preaching. Um, let me just read a couple verses there. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. It says, uh, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And you remember what Luke said about that word? He said he thinks the word experience is actually a better translation. And we'll get to that. Endurance produces experience, and experience produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So look at that progression. Suffering produces endurance. What's endurance? It's simply sticking it out, right? Because in the middle of your suffering, you don't see the outcome yet. But when you suffer, when, you have, when God gifts you the opportunity to suffer, your endurance in that suffering, your perseverance, you're saying, ah, I don't feel it yet, but I'm going to stick it out for now. What does that produce? It produces character or experience. Experience that has been tried, proven, right? Because then we can look back and say, look at what I experienced back there. And look at the outcome. Experience produces hope. And I think maybe a better word than hope, uh, the, it's unfortunate. The word hope in English is kind of weak. It's Because you use it like if you hope something will happen, like you kind of hope it will. You're not sure if it will, but you, that's not what it means. It means like a sure expectation. You know why? Because when we look back at our experiences, we see the outcome, and it creates this sure expectation in us. And that sure expectation does not make ashamed, because the outcome is guaranteed. Expectation doesn't disappoint, because... God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts. And we'll just take a minute to look back. We can see it. It says, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we are assured of God's love, when we look back and see it confirmed through the experiences in our lives and how his provision has been there and how he has been using even the difficult things in us to shape us, to, to put the character of Jesus in us, then we can be assured that his love in the future is going to be the same. And that his promises for the future will come to pass. We can go up into the land with full assurance saying, God's going to help me get this. It looks like too big of an assignment for me, but I know that he's going to help me. He's going to take care of the enemies that look like giants. And when that's the case, we can confidently assert, like it says in Romans 8, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor political unrest, nor pandemics, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Could we sing the song, um, Goodness of God? And as we sing, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. I want you to be mentally making a list. It's easy for us to look back at the story of Israel and we say, uh, wow, guys. I mean, look at the obvious ways God cared for you. But what about us? Can you look back over the last year of your life and say, wow, God, it's so obvious how you've been caring for me. It's so obvious that the outcomes that you have in mind are good. It's so obvious that you're fighting for me. And as we sing that, let's make it personal. And out of that, let faith arise for the circumstances that are ahead of you. And all my life you have been faithful. Stand with me. 